This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. First and Last by Hilaire Belloc. Chapter 37 The Tide. I wish I had been one of those men who first sailed beyond the pillars of Hercules and first saw, as they edged northward along a barbarian shore, the slow swinging of the sea. How much, I wonder, did they think themselves enlarged? How much did they know that all the civilization behind them, the very ancient world of the Mediterranean, was something protected and enclosed from which they had escaped into an outer world? And how much did they feel that here they were now physically caught by the moving tides that bore them in the whole movement of things. For the tide is of that kind, and the movement of the sea four times daily back and forth is a consequence, a reflection, and a part of the ceaseless pulse and rhythm which animates all things made, and which links what seems not living to what certainly lives and feels, and has power over all movement of its own. The circuits of the planets stretch and then recede. Their ellipse elongate and flatten again to the semblance of circles. The poles slowly nod once every many thousand years. There is a libration to the moon, and in all this vast harmonious process of come and go, the units of it twirl and spin, and as they spin run more gravely in ordered procession round their central star. That star moves also to a beat, and all the stars of heaven move each in times of its own as well, and their movement is one thing altogether. Whoever should receive the mighty business moving in one ear would get the music of it in a perfect series of chords superimposed the one upon the other, but not a tremble of them out of tune. The great scheme is not infinite, for were it infinite such rhythms could not be. It was made, and it moves in order, to the scheme of its making without caprice, not wayward anywhere, but in and out, and back and forth, as to a figure set for it. It must be so, or these exact arrangements could not be. Now with this regulated breathing and expiration, playing itself out in a million ways, and coextensive with the universe of things, the tides keep time and they alone of earthly things bring its actual force to our physical perception, to our daily life. We see the sea in movement and power before us, heaving up whatever it may bear, and we feel in an immediate way its strong backward sagging when the rocks appear above it as it falls. We have our hand on the throb of the current, turning in a salting river inland between green hills. We are borne upon it bodily as we sail. Its movement kicks the tiller in our grasp, and the strength beneath us and around us, the rush and the compulsion of the stream, its silence, and as it were its purpose, all represent to us, immediately and here, that immeasurable to and fro which rules the skies. When the Roman soldier came marching northward with Caesar, and first saw the shores of ocean, when, after that occupation of Gaul which has changed the world, 
they first mounted guard upon the quays of the Etian ports under Grisnez, or the rocky inlets of the Vanity by St. Malo and the Breton reefs. They were appalled to see what for centuries chance traders and the few curious travellers, the men of Marseilles and of the islands, had seen before them. They saw in numbers and in a corporate way what hitherto individuals alone had seen. They saw the sea like a living thing, advancing and retreating in an ordered dance, alive with deep sighs and intakes, and ceaselessly proceeding about a work and doing which seemed to be the very visible action of an unchanging will, still pleased with calculated change. It was the presence of the Roman army upon the shores of the Channel which brought the tide into the general conscience of Europe, and that experience, I think, was among the greatest, perhaps the greatest, of those new things which rushed upon the mind of the Empire when it launched itself by the occupation of Gaul. The tide, when it is mentioned in brief historical records of times long since, suddenly strikes one with vividness and with familiarity, so that the past is introduced at once, presented to us physically, and obtruded against our modern senses alive. I know of no other physical thing mentioned in this fashion, in chronicle or biography, which has so powerful an effect to restore the reality of a dead century. The Venerable Beattie is speaking in one place of Southampton Water in his ecclesiastical history, or rather of the Isle of Wight, whence those two princes were baptized and died under Cadwalla. As the historian speaks of the place, he says, In this sea, which is the Solent, comes a double tide out of the seas which spring from the infinite ocean of the Arctic surrounding all Britain. And he tells us how these double tides rush together and fight together, sweeping as they do round either side of the island, by the needles and by a spithead, into the landlocked sheet within. Now that passage in Beattie's fourth book is more real to me than anything in all his chronicle. For in the Southampton water today, the living thing which we still note as we sail is the double tide. You take a falling tide at the head of the water near Southampton town, and if you are not quick with your business it is checked in two hours, and you meet a strange flood, the second flood, before you have rounded Calshot Castle. Then there is a charter of Newcastle, or rather the inviolable customs of that town, very old, drawn up nearly eight hundred years ago, but beginning from far earlier, and in these customs you find written, If a plea shall arise between a burgess and a merchant, it must be determined before the third flowing of the sea, that is, within three tides, a wise provision, for thus the merchant would not miss the last tide of the day after the quarrel. How living it is, a phrase of that sort, coming in the midst of those other phrases. All the rest, worse luck, has gone. Burgage, tenure, and the economic independence of the humble and the busy, healthy life of men working to enrich themselves, not others, and that corporate association which was the blood of the Middle Ages, and the power of popular opinion, and, in general, freedom. But out of all these things that have perished, the tide remains, 
and in the eighteen clauses of the customs the title clause alone stands fresh and still has meaning the capital great clinching clause by which men owned their own land within the town has gone utterly and altogether the modern workman on the tyne would not understand you perhaps to whom in that very place you should say many centuries ago the men that came before you here your fathers were not working precariously at a wage or paying rent to others but living under their own roofs and working for themselves there is only one passage in the document that all could understand in newcastle today the very few rich who are hardly secure the myriads of poor who are not secure at all and that passage is the passage which talks about the third tide for even today there is some good we have left undestroyed and the sea still ebbs and flows this little note of the newcastle men and of the flowing and ebbing of their sea is to be found you say in the archives of england not at all it is to be found in the acts of the parliament of scotland at least so my book assures me but why i do not know perhaps of the times when between tyne and tees men look northward and of the times when they look southward for they alternately did one and the other during many hundreds of years those times when they look northward seemed the more natural to them anyhow the reference is to the acts of the parliament of scotland and that is the end of it the end of chapter thirty seven